love weaving, right? I love connecting. I love the human capacity, the human connection part of that, right? Um, I love the expansion. So um, if someone was to run into me and say, gosh, you're really glowing, you're really happy, what is different in your life? I could say, I have this great person. I could say that, but I could also say, um, I get to weave every day with people. I get to weave in community with people. Mm -hmm. And I get to be part of this um, world exploration and expansion and knowledge sharing that Chilcat weaving is not dead. Raven's Tale weaving is long from dead. We're, you know, vibrant and alive and innovating and, um, you know, here creating today, this moment, and again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. That was Lily Hope. She's a traditional Chilcat weaver from Juneau, Alaska. Both of her parents worked as full-time artists. So she grew up around the hustle of entrepreneurship and the responsibility of carrying on tradition. Her mom, Clarissa Rizal, learned how to weave from the late master Chilcat weaver, Jenny Clanat. Lily says that her mom probably felt the urgency of her own mortality, that it was imperative to teach her daughter the art of weaving, because in the last 150 years, there have been less than a dozen Chilcat ceremonial robe makers. So Lily was introduced to it at 14 or 15 years old. It wasn't a pleasurable experience, though. Her mom pretty much forced her into it, making her weave rows and rows before she could do anything leisurely, like hang out with friends. It was a chore, but it also turned out to be her calling. Whether she's weaving among a group or teaching others how to do it, she finds her happy place in human connection. When she's with a group of other weavers, there's commiserating, there's camaraderie, there's knowledge sharing. When she's teaching, she's passing on tradition and she's helping her students understand techniques. Seeing them finally wrap their minds around the intricacies of a technique and implement it is one of her greatest joys. Lily weaves ceremonial regalia for museums now. She says that her mom helped her understand and be comfortable with the idea. That they've been making these Chilcat blankets and robes for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and many of them live in museums. And for right now, museums operate as incubators, taking care of these pieces and sharing their stories. Until it's time for them to be released back into the world. So here she is, Lily Hope. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Right before we started recording, you said that you usually don't sit without weaving a pair of earrings. This is true. I, I don't know what to do with myself if I'm not, you know, if uh, I have hardly watched a movie in the last couple of years without weaving something. I feel like if I'm sitting for a couple of hours and my hands haven't produced something, what have I just done? So you feel like maybe you're wasting time if you're just sitting there. 
correct. It's such an opportunity. And, and I try, I really try not to bring work everywhere that I go, but you know, sometimes I need to split some cedar bark or measure out some yarns or make some slip knots or, you know, figure out the next color combination. So yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when you started doing that? You know, like realizing that when you're sitting down and watching a movie or maybe you just have some other idle time that you're going to weave. It definitely happened once I had children and I realized what 30 minutes was worth of 30 minutes of nobody asking me for something. Uh, <laughs> um, that's real. Like I, I joke that, you know, I can leave my children alone for a couple of hours in the morning and I get up, drink a cup of coffee, take care of some things. I'm, you know, tooling around the house, picking things up off the floor. Nobody asks me for anything until I step into the shower. And I'm <laughs> no joke. The record is 17 seconds. I get 17 seconds before somebody says, Mom, did you know blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, you didn't ask me or tell me that while I was not in the shower. You waited until I was in the shower. You've had two hours <laughs> to tell me that cool thing about cats. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Pretty amazing. So working, yeah, five children, uh, I know what 30 minutes is worth. And if I have to spend two and a half hours watching a movie, I want to spend half of it producing something because mm -hmm. the kids are quiet. <laughs> Have you maybe after, you know, you're done watching a movie and maybe you look down or you see kind of the fruits of your labor during that idle time, you look down at it and you're like, oh, that turned out really good. Oh, I'm saying that while I'm doing it. But yes, true. Yes. I mean, usually that is the case that, oh, how satisfying that I got to enjoy this rom-com or this action flick with my kids and... Um, and I got to make something extra out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What it reminds me of is artists that, you know, are maybe on a phone call. Maybe they are also watching a movie and they're just doodling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after the movie, they look down and they're like, wow, I, I wasn't expecting it to be that good. Right. My mother was notorious at, at staying on the phone and getting a whole bunch of work done. Mm. Mm -hmm. Really? Yep. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, she taught me to do what I do, which I used to laugh at her. You know, we'd go to these dinner parties and there'd be live music and there'd be a potluck and my mother would have some wool or some bark or some something in her hands and she would sit, you know, and socialize with people and had her hands moving. But then as we all got older, the three children, um, she would make a phone call at 5 a.m. and check in with so-and-so on the East Coast who was already awake and she'd work for a couple hours that way and she'd be gluing down buttons or she'd be, you know, making slip knots or weaving the few rows on the border that doesn't take a lot of brain power mm -hmm. um, and then you know she'd pause eat some breakfast or you know do a little house care stuff and then make another phone call and go deep into the work and shape this ovoid or you know weave that eye that she can you know she's woven 40 eyes before so this is also kind of a meditative work but connecting with people mm -hmm. uh, we all thought when she died that I was the most important person in her life you know and how many people I ran into that were like Clarissa was my best friend. I talked to her three times a week. I talked to her every other morning at 5 a.m. And I was like, no, I did. No, 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 that was me. Um, so she really knew how to stay connected and continue to do great work. Is that something that maybe you feel like you absorb from her? 
I mean, I used to be like, why can't you just relax, mm-hmm. right? Why can't you just put your feet up? Why aren't you allowed to like eat the turkey and cranberry sauce and not be working for like these three hours with your family? And she's like, oh, once, you know, just wait till you have kids. You're going to know what your time is worth. Just wait till you have kids, Lily. And I was like, is that a threat or a promise? Or sure enough, <laughs> I, that is, she was not joking. I, yeah. I know what, I know what 10 minutes, I know what 17 seconds is worth. A lot of quiet. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those comments by parents are, um, I don't know, like you said, they feel like they're a threat maybe in that moment when you're, I don't know, usually you're you're younger and you don't have kids and then mm-hmm. <laughs> you grow up and uh, you start like maybe having this different relationship with the things that your parents said and you're your understanding of them, you know? Right. Yep. Many times over, I'm like, oh, she was right. Oh, she was right about that too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. What was maybe the last time that you said that to yourself? Uh, just wait till you have kids. What did she say? She liked to say all sorts of general things about men are like this, men are like that. Make sure you find yourself a man, blah, 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 that, that does this particular thing. What was the last thing that was like, oh, you know what? I, um, I put the Cheerios in the refrigerator and I put the milk in the cabinet. And thankfully it was only a few minutes and I went back to get some, some milk for my coffee or something. And I realized that the Cheerios were in the milk door, like in the door of the fridge. And I just laughed because how many times I accused her of like, where is your brain right now? What what are you doing? She's like, yeah, just wait, just wait till you have 75 things on your mind and you're taking care of children. Yeah. You you just wait, you're going to put the Cheerios in the fridge. And I was like, nah, I'd never, I'm never gonna. And I fully, this was like the day before her six year death anniversary. And I put the chair, this was just a few days ago. So um, today is December something or other. So December 7 was her six year anniversary. And the day before that, I was feeling kind of, kind of raw, kind of emotional. It's like, why am I feeling so emotional? And then I find the Cheerios in the fridge and I laugh out loud. (laughs) And then I'm like, oh my gosh, even six years later, we're laughing about this. Yep. Just wait. You're going to put the Cheerios in the fridge. Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. That's great. Yeah, I, I love those. Um, I don't even know what you would call them besides like, it's this combination of like memories uh, and I told you so, mm-hmm. but also like, I don't know, they're they're also really sweet. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's an echo. Mm. Mm-hmm. That, that the voices of our parents are echoing long after they've stepped into the ocean or stepped into the ethereal realm, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read something a while back that said that your parents' voices will be, you know, forever your inner monologue. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is why we have to be so careful how we talk to our children mm-hmm. because if we are awful to them or give them some narratives that are unkind, if we give them unkind words, they're not going to hate us. They're going to take those words and repeat them to themselves and hate themselves. So that's so, um, mm. on the times that I'm like not my best mothering, I go back to them and say, I'm so sorry I was unkind. What I said was untrue. Like, don't, don't let that rep 
repeat in your mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do your kids respond to that? Um, you know, the, the, like shake it off. Oh, thanks mom. Okay. Thanks. And you know, hugs and they're, they're okay. They're, they're really kind, compassionate, helpful, generous, um, good friends, kids, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, anyway, yeah, I like who they're becoming. They are 15, 11, nine, eight and five. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty big range. Yeah. So the youngest one is 10 years older or 10 years younger than the oldest one. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do they go along? Great. I think they're the favorites. I mean, not really, but like the, that gap is so fun because, you know, the eldest can carry the youngest around and, you know, help put on shoes. And um, it's it's been so fun to see them interact and uh, do imaginative play, which still happens. There's a game called Mafia that you can play um, not on a screen uh, that has been fabulous to watch all five of them interact. Mm -hmm. You know, as I was doing my research and putting these questions together for you, I kept wondering how closely your personal life and your artwork relate to one another. Ugh. I don't... <laughs> Um, I've been I've been laying on the floor and uh, deep breathing a lot, like laying on my back, knees up, you know, feet flat on the floor, and just like, I can do this, mm -hmm. I can do this, I can do this. Exhale, okay, exhale. Um, and I had to let go of you know the intense productivity that has been kind of carrying me through the pandemic. Um, it's really not good for my mental state. And uh, I don't I don't know if my weaving has been tighter since being s more stressed out. Um, so I don't know if my work really reflects my home or mental life other than me weaving a little more tightly, right? That the that the textile will be a little firmer if I'm thinking about those 10,000 other things that also need to get done. Mm hmm. You know, the mental load or the list that we're constantly running of, oh, did I forget to get cranberry sauce? Wait, mm -hmm. do we need more toilet paper? Who has toothpaste? Does the upstairs bathroom have, uh, 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 do I need a scrub brush? Wait, where's the, you know, I mean, um, so, so yeah, that's the only way that it would be reflective of my personal life is being a tighter weave, um, except that I weave so many pieces for lineage, for children, uh, for uh, community and that's also my daily practice right um, how many people close to me can I pull into this um, goodness uh, can I spend 45 minutes playing back-to-back -back uno card games or pente or monopoly with my children and just be present in that space and then pivot and come and be present in the weaving space and leave that mental list and that, oh, I forgot the cranberry sauce at the door. Mm -hmm. So it's a practice in almost like compartmentalizing, but also in that, um, the power of now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not always good at it. There is definitely points where I'm like, we're only playing one Uno game because I have this and this and this and this to do. <laughs> 
Um, and I called my boo, my person, I've been da- we've been dating for about nine months. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, honey, I have seven major things that I need to finish this Monday. There is no way that I'm going to go swimming for half an hour and then sit in the sauna with you. That is not happening. I have no time for this. <laughs> And 20 minutes later, I called him back and I was like, you know what? I have seven really important things to do. We have to go swimming and sit in the sauna. Mm-hmm. Right? That I was like, wait, 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 hold on. Reverse backpedal. That, that rest and that physical movement is critical to the successful productivity and nailing those other items on the list. Yeah. Because without it, I'm, you know, not focused. My back hurts my you know thinking about why am I not floating in water or you know drenching myself with some cool water while I'm sweating all this out mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yep you know that stuff helps clear your mind too you know I'm a big walker mm-hmm. and I um you know sometimes I'm better about it than others but if I'm stressed if I'm too much in my head if I'm too I don't know, being too much of a workaholic, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the best moments, I'll be like, all right, go out for a walk. And whatever problem, you know, I'm trying to solve, or maybe I just feel this block, it dissipates, you know, Correct. on that walk. And I'm able to get better work done when I get back. Yeah. What's the saying? They say something about like, um, oh, you have a stressful day coming up, spend an hour in nature. Oh, you have a super stressful day coming up, spend two hours in nature. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, snowball it into rest is part of the productivity that we really do our best work with a little bit of a walk or a swim or you know even just around the block for 15 minutes you know mm-hmm. and and how often are you able to do that to make a conscious effort to just take a breath and get out there oh my goodness um through the summer of 2022 i walked uh, 4.04 miles. Thank you, Apple Watch. Plug, mm-hmm. plug. Um, 4.04 <laughs> miles every single day for 11 weeks. That's great. I think I missed three days in that 11 weeks, and I felt the best I've felt in my entire life ever. Yeah. And it, was, it was the longest sustained daily activity that I've ever done. Uh, my mental health was through the roof. Uh, my productivity and creativity and the number of sketches and ideas and collaborations that I started during that time is, I mean, next level. The people mm-hmm. are like, you're doing what? And you're doing that? And you're doing what? And you're doing that too? And you're doing, wait, wait uh, how, where are you, Lily? How are you, <laughs> you know, um, I was sleeping well. I mean, yeah, yeah it was... And now, you know, it's winter in Alaska and the winds are blowing and it's you know, 25 degrees, but feels like it's 11 degrees with the wind chill. And mm -hmm. so I have not been outside in a few days. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple minutes ago, you mentioned cranberry sauce. And I was going through your social media and came across a video where you said that you like cranberry sauce, but only Uncle Mike's cranberry sauce. What's going on with Uncle Mike's cranberry sauce? Oh, he and my aunt Deanna, who is my, uh, sounding board creative creative collaborator aunt diana um uncle mike brought cranberry sauce probably 10 years ago um to a thanksgiving something or other um 
And I was like, what is this? Why is this so different and awesome? <laughs> and I don't know if he told me that year or if he waited a few years, but um, he uses um, mango passion fruit juice instead of water, okay. instead of water to cook it in. And he still adds a little sugar, but that twist of mango is just, I, I have yet to have cranberry sauce that speaks to me the same as Uncle Mike's cranberry sauce. And to the point that he will make some to bring to the party, the potluck, whatever. And he will also make me a container that I get to bring home. Costco-sized berries, right? The big, yeah. like, two- or three-pound bag, five-pound bag. And I get to eat all of it for the next week. So I'm very <laughs> spoiled by Uncle Mike. Mm -hmm. What do you put your cranberry sauce on? Oh, no, I don't. I just Oh, you eat just it. eat it? Yes, by, like, a half a cup, three-quarters cup at a time. Mm -hmm. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll sometimes I'll throw a piece of turkey on it, but most of the time, my son Lewis and I fight over it. <laughs> I'm like, don't eat any more of that, Lewis. How many bowls have you had? He's like, Mom, you already had two. I can have two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And when were you first introduced to weaving? Oh my goodness. Um. I kept saying 14 or 15, and I think it's 1996, which, I don't know, 15, 1995, 1996, so that, hmm, and uh, it, it wasn't a it was very much like she was kind of pulling teeth, she was forcing me into it, my mother, Clarissa Rizal, mm -hmm. um, so, she would be like, you're going to weave four rows before you can hang with your friends. You're going to weave four rows before you go to that overnight. But you're going to weave, you know, weave this many rows before you can do that. And then she'd be like, and you have to clean the toilet and do the dishes. And I'm like, oh. So it was a chore back then. Um, but then it was early 2000s. I moved back to Juneau, Alaska, where my mother was born. So I had been gone from Alaska f for 10 years. I arrive back in Juneau and start taking classes at the University of Alaska Southeast. And I took a Ravenstill class with this teacher, Kay Parker, who was one of Cheryl Samuel's first uh, students or early in the 80s. And uh, I was exceedingly good at weaving without being an egomaniac about that i was just there was something about my hands knowing what to do mm -hmm. um and and without having the um force put upon me i dropped into meditation in that space mm. so not only was this like oh i'm kind of good at this which is super fun to do stuff that you're good at right if you're a gymnast and you go into gymnastics and you're like you can simone biles it all over the place like mm -hmm. uh, that is that is really satisfying yeah to, to have some inherent talent that you work really hard at um which i guess i worked kind of hard at in my teen years because it came back in my 20s and i was i really enjoyed it but the thing i enjoy most is the community. Mm -hmm. You know, people say, people ask me like, why do you do what you do? Like, what do you, do you like the fiber in your hand? Do you like, you know, do you like the dyes that you get to make? Do you, what, what's, do you like bringing things to life? Sure, I love bringing things to life. Why did I have five children? Why do I, you know, um, but uh, it's the human connection and the supporting of other people and watching them get it that gets me excited and keeps me doing the work. And by human connection, you know, I guess my question would be, you said that you get into a meditative state when you're weaving 
Are you weaving around other people who are also in that meditative state? So maybe it's this, um, this quiet togetherness, or are you referring to like after the weaving's done and the community that, that follows that? Yes to both. I, okay. I do like, I opened a public studio space in April of 2022 and have had someone in my studio with me almost every day that I'm working. I have a couple apprentices who've helped me finish some pretty major work. Uh, we just started a project that is not on commission, which is super exciting. And it is, um, you know, the twining itself or the finger twining across this fiber is meditative in itself. Like we get into this rhythm, this groove, kind of having a conversation without talking. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but then we can also talk, right? And we joke about this or we have sharing meatloaf recipes or we're, you know, which, what are the best moccasins? Do you prefer sea otter fur or beaver fur? And like all the different conversations that we get into. Um, but then we also get to share in those, oh my gosh, I got it. I, I get how to do this particular braid or, mm -hmm. oh, did you know that we could sneak and do a little cheat turn right here and make a little subtler circle curve at the bottom like just sharing those moments where we get to like celebrate each other and our mm -hmm. successes and then commiserate about like oh my gosh i spent six hours weaving yesterday i'm gonna take all of it out right and you know all of that part um but then serving as a teacher has really been you know some of us are born to be teachers and some plumbers and some uh radio personalities and some, you know, um, I, I, de I was definitely born to be a teacher. And you realize that through teaching other people how to weave? Well, uh, I, I guess, yes, that's, that's the short answer. Well, I guess I've always enjoyed teaching. Like my dad, my dad taught so many art classes when I was a child, theater, art, his studio art, you know, cooking, music, all the things. Mm -hmm. So I was always around it. And then my mother took on apprentices. So that was also part of my upbringing, um, that there were always students around. But I really love, I really love seeing the faces of my students no matter what age they are, where they are in their learning, when they go, I get it, I mm -hmm. get it. Or the, the twining technique that Jenny left with my mother, Clarissa, that, that it really makes our work twice as fast. Like someone who has Jenny's twining technique is so fast. And when they, when they get that muscle memory and they can be like, oh my gosh, I just did a whole row all the way across, like a whole 72 inches in 15 minutes. This used to mm. take me two hours. Right? Yeah. Okay. Like they're just, they're just the delight. I, I love that. I love that so much. Mm. Why do you think it was so important to your mom that you learn how to weave? Um, well, I mean, in the last 150 years, there's fewer than a dozen Chilkat ceremonial robe makers. So I think she felt the urgency um, of mortality and that she was one of a handful of weavers who were creating regalia. And um, she has lots of students and some of them are fabulous teachers, but they've also had children and other careers and other jobs. and. Uh, I thought I was going to have a career as an actor. I was going to move to New York and, you know, work off Broadway and all sorts mm. of fun. 
But um, when she died in 2016, I was halfway done with a Chilkat blanket for the Portland Art Museum. And I realized that I was also two classes away from a master's in teaching elementary education. And I had been working for seven years on this teaching degree in the wrong uh, form, right? That I wasn't supposed to be an elementary school teacher. I was supposed to be teaching weaving the whole time. So I say that it all started with Paulo Coelho's book, The Alchemist. Mm -hmm. uh, my eldest child, Nicholas, was about a year old. I was living in Santa Fe, getting a business and entrepreneurship certificate at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I was turned on to this book and I find myself three in the morning reading this book start to finish. Like I started it as my kid fell asleep and then the only light that wouldn't bother my sleeping family was in the bathroom in the shower, this like upright shower. So here I am like huddled in the shower with clothes on, um, reading this book and I'm telling you that the, the beams, you know, in Santa Fe, they have those beautiful beams of wood that run across the, the ceiling. Those opened mm -hmm. and it was like, you will be a teacher. So the next morning I called the university up in Alaska and was like, hey, how do I become a teacher? I have a four-year bachelor's degree. What do I need to do? And I started the process of becoming an elementary school teacher. But after all of that, seven years later, I'm almost about to get a master's in teaching. My mother passes away. I've got half a robe finished. And I get this like two different phone calls from uh, the Alaska State Council of the Arts and the Siri Foundation and these institutions up in Alaska that are like, hey, Lily, um, we have funding to support a couple um, endangered art forms or like uh, native uh, workshops. Can you put together a proposal to maybe teach a few people some Chilkat weaving or whatever you feel like you can teach? Mm -hmm. So I was like, wait, 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 wait. Should I back out of the master's in teaching program? And so I was like, okay, here's the thing. I'm going to apply. I'm going to put together some workshops. And if I get funding, that'll tell me what I'm supposed to be teaching, right? Yeah. Sure enough, I got the funding. And now whenever the heavens open and say, you will be this, or you should be doing that or whatever's, you have to say, what kind of teacher, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. oh, give me some more details on that, please. Universe. <laughs> Do you ever go back to the alchemist and maybe try to recreate that epiphany? N no, I never have opened that book since. It's it's that process of, uh, and this is a good friend of mine, Glenn Ray. He's teaching Tai Chi here in Juneau. Um, he brought up that you know when you're going into meditation and you have this transcendental experience where you know you feel your your spine energy is rising and you you have this epic like deep meditative experience of like oh, I am one with the universe. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. You, you don't get to replicate that again. Like if that is your goal, sitting on your mat every time you come to meditation to get back to that feeling, you had the feeling already. You know who you are and where you are in the world and what you're supposed to be doing. You are one with the universe, right? Seek another experience, mm -hmm. right? The, the, em, embody, embrace that of I, I, I got the message and then say, show me the next door, right? What's the next great thing I'm ready to receive? 
so what was that next door? Uh, let's see. Well, I, I got the grants to do the workshops. Um, I think 26 people were in that first workshop in the uh, fall, winter of 2017. Um, and it snowballed from there. I think I got a Rasmussen Foundation Award the next spring, and I realized that this was, this was the path. I I just kept saying yes mm-hmm. to the weaving opportunities and the you know grant opportunities and um, thinking about uh, Rasmussen Foundation is fabulous because they support artists being really selfish. And that's words from one of the program managers where I called and I said, hey, I want to teach this workshop. Can I apply for a grant through Rasmussen Foundation to teach this workshop? And he said, no, no, we don't want you to teach a workshop. We want you to go deep into your own practice and Mm. level up your own work as an artist. Yeah. You can collaborate with people and all three of you level up. Um, but you know, if you need to go do museum research, if you need to study with a mentor, if you need to attend that particular festival or that you know intensive uh, business workshop, if that's the next thing that you need to blow up as an artist, Rasmussen Foundation wants you to do that. Hmm, that's great. So that's where I was like, oh, really? You, we're we're allowed to be selfish? We're not like in the Clinket tradition. We are not allowed to be selfish. I mean, it is not about us. Right, not about the individual. It is about how how much good can I bring to my community. Mm-hmm. So that was weird. That was weird then. Yes, it it was it was very strange. I, it was I had to like I had to go re like move all the things around and be like, why why and how is this going to be okay? Mm-hmm. If they give me an award, am I allowed to accept it? So that and and. So I've had to take a multi-pronged approach to it in, um, like I said, I, uh, maybe I didn't say this, but I don't love weaving, right? I love connecting. I love the human capacity, the human connection part of that, right? Um, I love the expansion. So, um, if someone was to run into me and say, gosh, you're really glowing, you're really happy, what is different in your life? I could say, I have this great person. I could say that, but I could also say, um, I get to weave every day with people. I get to weave in community with people. Mm-hmm. And I get to be part of this um, world exploration and expansion and knowledge sharing that Chilcat weaving is not dead. Raven's Tale weaving is long from dead. We're, you know, vibrant and alive and innovating and, um, you know, here creating today, this moment, and again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow.
So your favorite part about weaving is the community element. Do you have any memories of watching your mom work and maybe watching her work in her element? Hmm. Um, I didn't sit a lot with her, like quiet at the loom. And I guess she wasn't really often quiet because she was talking on the phone or blasting Van Morrison. Um, <laughs> So it wasn't she she wasn't particularly quiet when she was weaving. Mm -hmm. The the thing I remember most that I admire most about my mother was her ability to capture an audience. That her charisma and magnetism and ability to share story was just next level. Do you have an example? Ugh, I think the best one she ever did was actually right before she died um, at the National Endowment for the Arts uh, Fellowship Awards over in Washington, D.C., I think. Um, she invited myself and my sister and my brother to go, and we were like, no, we can't do that. Oh, I had all the excuses. Oh, that's too far to go, blah, blah, blah. My aunt was there, a couple of her really good friends, Darlene and Donna were there and uh, helped her on stage to bring some of these works to life. But um, they mic'd her up. She had her regalia on. She was spinning on her leg, and she was just sharing about the, you know, the beingness of sharing about Chilcat weaving and this journey and what a trip it was. And um, her energy was just through the roof. I mean, just, I, what a, what an outstanding storyteller. Come to find out that after that performance, which was either live streamed or recorded, um, she slept for like 16 hours because she was really not well already. So she put all of her life force into that particular performance. Just wow. Yeah, I bet that was special. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you want to have regrets? When your mother says, hey, come over to Washington, D.C. and come and watch me accept this, like, basically top-level award for being a creative, show up. Just show up. We never know how much time we have. Just rearrange your life and show up for each other. What kind of effect do you think that that maybe continues to have on you as an adult? Oh, when my father said, I'm going to put together this music thing this, this spring in April, he calls me up a couple weeks in advance and he says, hey, somewhere around the 20th of April, I'm going to have a um, like 15 act little like uh, music festival and I want you to come down and sing a song for my not a birthday and I was like not a birthday huh and he's like well you know I don't really like celebrating my birthday but I'd really like to have all these mus musicians get together and share some music mm -hmm. and I was like Ugh. my dad is 70 <laughs> you know he made it 10 years older than my mother did mm. and he's still alive today so he called me up and I was like looking at flights and looking at a song that I would sing if he was going to accompany me and I'm not a singer and I was all nervous and I was like oh it's going to cost me a lot of money to get to Colorado on the short notice and I don't know and do I really want to sing this song and oh my gosh I might make a fool of myself but he invited me and I said yes because I wasn't going to let him you know I did I did grill him I was like Okay, hold on, hold on. 
why are you asking me? Why are you having a not a birthday? Why are you celebrating <laughs> your birthday? Are you going to die of a terminal illness that we don't know about yet? Do you need to tell us something? Is this critical? And he's like, no, no, nothing. I'm not dying. I don't have anything that, you know, da, da. he's like, I just think it's kind of significant that I made it seven decades. And I just want to hang out with some people that I like. Mm-hmm. So I got there. Yes, it cost me a lot of money. Yes, I rearranged stuff that I didn't have to bring anybody but the eldest child with me. Um, and I got there, and I'm telling you, for the first time in my life, I understood my dad on a level that was um, different from any other time because he played with every other act that was up there, right? So there'd be a solo act of this, or this team would get up, and then he'd go up and accompany somebody on mandolin, then he'd step off. Then he'd go up and accompany somebody on bass, and he'd step off. And while he was on stage, he was glowing. I mean, he was, mm. he was like, he was I, like just this aura of extreme happiness, right? Yeah. And when he wasn't on stage, and I got to stand next to him a few times and like hold his arm, because I don't, I don't live in his zip code. I live three and a half thousand miles away. So I was being real affectionate with him and just enjoying the space with him. And even when he wasn't on stage, he was like, this is my father's happy place, is making and sharing and listening to live music together. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really? I'm this old? And I finally understand my dad on his like most base and explosive level, mm -hmm. right? This is his essence. My, my sister lives with him. She says that he plays music six hours a day. Do you remember what song you sang? Oh, yeah. It's an Ed Sheeran song called Photograph. We keep this love in a photograph. We made these memories for ourselves. Right? Anyway, cheesy. <laughs> what was his reaction? Oh, he had a great time. And I don't know how to sing on beat. So he's really adaptable and huge credit to my dad, Bill Hudson, for knowing how to mix it up and make it seem like I'm singing correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, you just just a minute ago, you said something really interesting that, you know, as an adult, you finally realize like this is your dad's happy place and you know i wonder what other epiphanies have you had about about your parents and maybe the reason that that connected with me is because i've had similar epiphanies you know that my dad for example his happy place is on the beach surfing you know like <laughs> that's just that's just him and maybe i I thought it was too simple when I was younger. I'm like, it's got to be more complicated than that. And then mm -hmm. as I got older, I'm like, no, that's it. That's mm -hmm. just totally it. And mm -hmm. you just, I don't know, those moments are special because you're able to understand your parents and also understand yourself in maybe a deeper way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... Um... We are, we are all not motivated by the same things, nor do we all enjoy the same things. And uh, dating an introvert is really fun. 
um, mm-hmm. because I'm not an introvert. I, I thrive. <laughs> like I, I can work a whole six, seven, eight hour day surrounded by people and then go out after that and go to dinner and hang out with another six or eight, 10 people and then go to a club or, you know, the bar after that and listen to live music and go dancing. And I am high off of that, right? Like I am just rolling on happy juice. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not actual like drugs or alcohol just that is my happy place is human connection and you know my children even are like can we do one outing a day like if we're gonna go somewhere can we just do one like we're either gonna <laughs> go to the grocery store or we're gonna go to the beach let's not do both and I'm like what let's go to the grocery store and talk to every person in every aisle and check in with Jim and how his kids are doing and talk to Susie and and, and they're like no we don't like that <laughs> And, and I'm like, wait, wait who, who else do we get to see? Where else can we go? Nope. Mm-mm. So, so it's really fun to have those epiphanies and realize that, like, my, my dad doesn't particularly love hanging out and talking with people or having philosophical. I mean, he, he'll have philosophical discussions, but not in a group setting with 40 other people or on Zoom with, you know, everybody doing their own thing. Like, mm. I get to Zoom every single Sunday afternoon and hang out with 12 to 25 weavers. And we're all, you know, sharing what's up with our lives. And, oh, gosh, my dog died this week. or And we're all like, mm. oh, he was so sweet. I'm so sorry. Um, so that kind of connection. My dad doesn't love that. He really loves making music and not talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's great. Now I know. Was there a point in your weaving where you maybe moved to a different place in your abilities and your understanding of it? Oh my goodness. I think it was halfway through this um, robe that just got finished for the Houston Museum of Natural Science. We did a first dance event on September 24, 2022, live in person in Houston. Oh, so hot in Houston. But um, about halfway through that, um, I was like, wait, there's actually a formula to this, you guys. <laughs> I mean, there there always has been like in my mind. I'm like, okay, it takes this many, you know, drop drop this many warps to make this eye, or you know, drop this many to do this. But then the way that they the way that the colors interlock and they hook elbows and kind of dosy do back their respective directions. I mean, there is like the technical part of it is very specific and um, predictable, mm-hmm. but that creative chaos part of it. There's a, like, we are kind of negotiating the universal chaos of this particular being that's coming to life. And when we can surrender our will to the work and allow this being to come to life, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's easy. <laughs> we we can it it's almost like having babies actually, like in the birthing process that if we can get out of our own mind and let our body and the baby do its chemical hormone work, we can just ride the waves. Right? Well, we know like Chilcat weavers know that yes, we can twine this way, we can turn around and go back that way, we can hook colors and turn back this way and drop braids and all this stuff. But it really is this relationship of surrender and technical mastery that have to be intertwined, huh, interwoven to 
master the work or to like really allow it to come through so that came about just in the last six months which I'm like people are like oh are you 10,000 hours into your work yet and I'm like mm, maybe seven and a half thousand hours not quite the Malcolm Gladwell like 10,000 hours thing right mm -hmm. um, or maybe he's not the first guy who brought that up but it took me almost 8,000 hours to realize that a big part of my work is allowance and surrender mm. You know, I feel like with most art forms, there's a point when you're learning the history and the basics of it, and then you eventually start including your own flair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess that kind of came about in early 2020 when that Chilcat Protector mask came out and Burke, the Burke Museum picked it up right away. And then uh, that snowballed into like multiple other museums being like, I want one of those. Can I record history too? I want to, I want to be part of that recording of history in the Northwest coast. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that little flare of like, uh, what if, what if, what if I didn't weave full size ceremonial regalia all the time? What if I was allowed to weave smaller works mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and still utilize this particular art form to document our history now recording history now mm -hmm. hmm. how about form line how important is that in weaving and maybe when were you introduced to it mm. i've taken quite a few you know single weekend or double weekend workshops or took a whole form line class with wayne price probably only four or five years ago um, and then I've studied with Steve Brown a little bit with how to adapt the form line to Chilcat form. Um, and Steve lives down in Washington state, but he's, um, he calls himself, or maybe we call him that, but he's like a, a knowledge placeholder for the indigenous artists, hmm. right? That he's not indigenous himself, but the way that he is able to hold knowledge and share it back to the community and beyond, um, He's really respectful in that, and that's that's what we look for in our allies, is the is the um, you know, sure yes he has made a living um, you know making and carving and teaching Northwest Coast art, um, but he's also not doing it with a like beating on his chest saying look at what a good savior I am. Mm, okay. Right. Um, there's a humbleness to Steve Brown. So. Yeah. Anyway, I have to weave adapted form line. And I guess I refer to the Bill Holm book on Northwest Coast form line and, um, and what those shapes look like when they're woven. And there's a reason that we don't just pull a design off of a house screen or a totem pole and try and weave it because it would make the weaver go gray or tear her hair out. Mm -hmm. Like it's not... Uh, it's not practical or efficient to um, skip the step of adapting our farmland shapes to weavable forms. How often do you see your weavings being used in ceremonies? Oh, I don't. You don't? Okay. No, and that's been an interesting conversation. I, I have yet to weave a ceremonial work that stays in my community or goes to another smaller community and gets used in ceremony. Um, I was 
I was actually demonstrating at Sea Alaska Heritage Institute in their Dolores Churchill artist in residence space, and a person came in, a tourist came in and said, huh, so you weave ceremonial regalia for museums, huh? How are you okay with that? And I was like, well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> let, let me get back to you. So I took their number and I called my mother who was still alive. This was early in my Chilkat weaving career. Mm -hmm. I called her and I said, hey, how am I okay with uh, weaving ceremonial work for museums? <laughs> and she said, well, aren't you okay? Like, aren't you paying your bills? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, so you're weaving a work that is going to incubate. And I said, what? And she goes, you know, um, your work is, think about it this way, that we've been weaving these for thousands of, hundreds, if not thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And um, many of our little beings that we've woven to life do live in museums. But those museums have been around uh, a lot less time than we've been weaving these works, right? And she says, museums might outlive you, Lily, and they might outlive your children, but we don't know how long they're really going to be institutions across the world, right? So if you can think about your weavings as being born premature and needing a little bit more incubation time, and maybe they are uh, donated to science, maybe they are scientific study, maybe they're mathematical study, um, that scholars and uh, researchers and um, enthusiasts are going to come and see your work in a place that's being well cared for, mm -hmm. right? Your work is being cared for. You know, there's no hoses or little like breathing tubes hooked up to your robe, but she's, she was the one who first said, we are all born into this world in whatever incarnation we are as rocks, as trees, as weavings, as humans, as cats. Um, some of us are um, support networks. Some of us are the creators of oxygen for our communities. Some of us are teachers, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about your work, this born premature work as teaching others, then you are birthing teachers. They are just not human. Do you think that that explanation, your mom's explanation, helped you be okay with it? Very much. Very much. And to recognize that even her teacher, Jenny Clanat, was offering Chilkat weavings for sale outside of her community because it paid for her children to live. Mm -hmm. Because it paid, it's a livelihood. And... Um, not every being that we bring in, not every Chilkat being that we bring into the world has to be um, ceremonial. It doesn't have to be clan property. Um, we're, we're allowed to make work and put it out in the world and let it have a life outside of Alaska, outside of Canada, um, and let it come home when it's ready. Maybe in three generations, maybe five. You know, but the way that museums are working now, they're keeping the artist's name, they're keeping, you know, the provenance of the city or community that it came from. Um, we're, we're helping to change those conversations. Do you think that that's a common outlook on these, you know, Chilkat robes and blankets and other weavings? Or do you think that, you know, you're an outlier, you and your mom are outliers? Um, 
I mean, well, Evelyn Vanderhoop, she's a Canadian-American uh, Haida weaver. Mm -hmm. um, she's been selling work to museums and art collectors. Um, and we're careful not to weave um, clan robes and gift, you know, have them leave our communities. Mm -hmm. we, we use not generic designs, but kind of public domain designs or create some from our own dreams and stories so that they're not, we're not stepping on any cultural toes. So mm, we are okay. really sensitive to that um, because we don't, um, we don't want to cause our community harm or grief in, uh, you know, weaving these beings that are leaving the community. I, I would love, I would, and we just talked about this earlier this week with my um, students on, on Sundays. Um, we were just talking about, wouldn't it be amazing to put together a cohort of weavers whose job it is to connect with museums across the world and say, look, this robe belongs in this community. This robe has been gone from home for 200 years. We'd love to return it home, the original piece. Mm -hmm. We will weave you a replica and you can have the new one and send our ancestor home. Mm -hmm. We'll bring you an ambassador in its place, kind of like, kind of like trading a prisoner, but we're we're volunteering that gift, mm. right? Yeah, and and not not volunteering in the sense of don't pay us, but we're we're saying we want our ancestors to come home. What can we do to allow you to still enjoy this? M maybe there's a matchy matchy we can make for you. So. I think that would be so powerful and healing for the communities to bring our ancestors home. Yeah. Have you ever seen original Chilkat robes or blankets? Oh yeah. Um, in the Museum of Anthropology in Vancouver. Um, uh, where else? Uh, here in Juneau, we have quite a few at the Alaska State Museum. Mm, visited a few down in Portland at the Portland Art Museum. Uh, some at the Burke Museum um, here at Sea Alaska Heritage Institute. There's quite a few, actually. I got to work on a couple of them. I repaired one that is, oh, I think it's easily 150 years old mm, wow. for, um, for a clan in Wrangell. And then I have one in my possession right now that has had some, some damage that needs some repair. And then, uh, actually, an art collector reached out to me um, in Washington State and said, hey, we've been following you on social media. We just acquired this from an art auction, and it needs a little bit of this moved around and that adjusted. The, the side braids are unraveling. Can you come and, you know, can, can we fly to Juno and bring this to you? So sure enough, they show up. You know, we, we planned ahead, and uh, they said, we're going to stay an extra day and just tool around. Um, good thing they stayed an extra day because that robe needed three days of work. It was fabulous. How do you repair these original robes? Um, myself, we, we talked about it. Um, and I've talked with Ellen Carley, the conservator at the Alaska State Museum. She's a great friend. Um, we've talked about how do we go into it without adding, right? As, as we, um, you know, go back just even 50 years in conservation in museums, um, you know, they would try to do the repair, but not make it look like the original work. Okay. So like, um, so making the repair visible, not trying to mimic the mastery of whatever that work was originally, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And myself and this um, 
this buyer who came up from Washington, we talked through that of like, do you want me to add new yarns if there's a piece that needs to be restitched? Um, or would you prefer for me to work with what is in the robe itself and maybe move some yarns around if they need to use a little bit of the overlay fringe, if we need to stitch another, you know, a few stitches through that is coming apart. And we agreed that that was the best way forward mm -hmm. to not add anything new and to keep it um, as, you know, in its original form as much as possible. Um, yeah. So that was the method we took with this particular repair. There, this this other one that I still have to work on, um, I think it's going to require that I get some new material. Mm, so we have to talk through that of like, how visible or intentional do you want this to look? Do you want it to be a flawless repair so that in another hundred years, as this robe continues to get danced, you know, these yarns might age differently than the ones from a couple hundred years ago. That's interesting that you use new material. You know, I'd be interested to know, and I'm not expecting you to know what this conversation was like, but that original conversation, because when I think about, um, you know, fixing these older pieces of art, I'm also thinking of like paintings and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, when they are fixing those, uh, fixing like, you know, little mess ups in, in the painting. They're also like thinking of what's this, what's the mixture that made this color paint. And they try to replicate that. Correct. And then they have, you know, the artist, you know, try to replicate one of these, like these old Renaissance paintings or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that is, that is the, that is the discussion I have to have with this particular, um, caretaker for this robe mm. um is do we want to like if this particular section is mountain goat do you want me to use natural mountain goat or are you okay if we put some merino wool in this um how how much do we want to stick to this or do we just stop the damage where it is right do some sort of pause in here and don't add anything new mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah it is up to the caretaker of the robe. Like I'm not going to force my, again, I'm not going to force my will, right? I'm not going to force my beingness on, on this uh, caretaker nor on the work itself that, that um, it's, it's a practice in listening mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh -huh. and, and surrender relationships. Yeah. What's that like for you to encounter something that holds so much history and, you know, it also set the standards for the art that you make. Mm -hmm. um, I I actually did get to stitch um, the drawstrings that hold the borders to the main design field. I got to stitch one of those together at the Burke Museum probably six or seven years ago, was seven, 2017, April of 2017, so five years ago, mm -hmm. six, almost six years ago. Um, but I got to put the drawstring back in and we did use some old button thread that was probably in a box since the 80s. Um, but the, there is, um, I, I don't want to call it a happy place, but like there's a delight that happens when um, we can contribute to something like that. I, I was, I, I mean, um, I, it, was, it was as if we were having a conversation and uh, 
me and this work or um that they were like thanks for coming over and and helping me do this you mm-hmm. know i've really i've really wanted my shoulder to rotate a little better you know just yeah. just putting a little lubricant on that so that you can move just a little stronger um so yeah it just um energetically to um get into that space of um helping these little beings live a little longer a little brighter a little happier uh that's a that's an uplifting feeling. Mm-hmm. When you look at other chill cat blankets or robes, are you able to read them? You know to understand their stories. Mm, not always. There's so many stories that we have lost, mm. and it's kind of like reading a totem pole if you don't know the story of that pole, right? If you don't know the strongman story and you don't know how Raven brought, you know, uh, brought land to the peoples or, you know, the salmon box, brought the salmon box ashore, um, you you can't read the work, right? There's there's a whole series of, of, you know, diving whale and this is the frog emerging from its den and this is, there's, there's definitely um, identifiable and historical designs that um, we can say, oh, that's a Kiksati clan robe, that's a Shungu Kadi clan robe. Um, you know, uh, that's possible. But no, the, the more obscure or, you know, distributive designs that have a little more creativity in them, mm-hmm. uh, that is hopefully written or recorded somewhere. But no, I'm, I am not a reader of Chilcat Blankets. In your experience or in your mind, has weaving changed or transformed over the years? Hmm. Yes, I think that it has as far as creative expression goes. Um, I mean, of course it has because we we originally, right, right if we're going to go back, we were pulling, so we're weaving on spruce root, we're weaving with cedar bark, one of us or a number of us figure out that we could weave some geometric patterns on wool of mountain goat hair, right? Mm-hmm. So then these these basketry patterns start emerging in pure mountain goat hair um, in black and white with sparing use of yellow. Then someone figures out, well, what if we put some braids around some of these shapes and start making ovoids and eyes? What if we weave circles? And then there's some transitional robes between Raven's Tail, the geometric ones, and the Chilcat with the curvilinear lines, where there is both the geometric and the curvilinear shapes in the same robe. I think there's there might be one that has bark spun into the warp, and then there's one that doesn't. So there's these these robes that are merging the two forms, and then we move away from Raven's Tail completely and go into Chilcat for a few hundred years, where the geometric robes slept, right? So that is already a, a change, evolution, you know, shift. Um, we're, we're already seeing this growth or the, the sleeping of one art form and the waking up of another and how that is coming in. And then Cheryl Samuel steps into the picture and does some research and finds these Raven's Tale robes and fragments of them and writes the Raven's Tale book. Um, she also had written the Chilcat dancing blanket. So then all this, 
new information is out there and we've got book access and you know there's students all up and down the coast and a couple teachers that are teaching this and then we come into today where we have I mean, hundreds of people know how to weave a perfect Chilcat circle. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of people know how to weave raven's tail designs and leggings and headdresses and, you know, smaller regalia items. And my sister, Ursula Hudson, um, starts weaving these pieces that hit the runway at Swaya Indian Market Fashion Show, you know, this last August of 2022. And um, it's this, like... Oh my goodness. Yes, our regalia belongs on the Haute Couture runways. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're in, we, we are allowed to bring the ceremony into these spaces, right? Mhm. So that has been awesome to witness. And then people ask me, "Well, don't you want to weave a chilkat blanket that's like orange and purple and green?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, I don't. No, I don't. I, I don't want to like that. That that rubs my sensibilities all backwards, right? Okay. That 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 do do I love weaving a pride chilkat mask with the pride colors on it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Would I ever weave a chilkat blanket? fully in rainbow colors probably not because a full-size one I'll, I'll say this because these blankets were left in my care with the intent and knowledge that each of these chilcat dancing robes or blankets interchangeable i use them both these robes are spirit beings they they are beings who are part of our cultural ceremonial system like they are part of us like one of us they they, each of them have a spirit within Mm -hmm. and we have been weaving them in black and white and blue and yellow or green and yellow for hundreds of years why why because these are spirit beings and spirits can see three colors Hmm. white blue and yellow i'm not going to mess with that if 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 these beings need to hold energy and space and story and history and ceremony i'm not going to mess with the integrity of that mm-hmm. there there might be chilcat weavers out there who want to weave a chilcat blanket in purples and orange i'm i'm not one of them because i believe that they are the way that they are for a reason Is there anything else you wouldn't weave? I probably wouldn't weave My Little Pony or T-Rex or adapted form line of some iconic... I I shouldn't. I mean, nobody's asked, and I haven't had the impetus to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, that, That people are like, well, don't you feel restricted by the colors and shapes that you can make? And I say, no, because... The best art through any genre, through any timeline, through any practice, painting, collage, otherwise, if we don't have parameters, we don't get to master that, mm-hmm. right? That the best work comes out of restriction. I wonder if you think traditional weaving is maybe more malleable than other native art forms or 
is it the nature of native art forms to be malleable? Mm, malleable. Malleable. Expressive. I, I think, huh, malleable. Malleable, if we were going to define, would be um, changeable, shapeable. Uh, Evolving. Able to, hmm. I don't, I don't know of any art form, indigenous or otherwise, that hasn't been evolving. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know that I could say that it's not, mm -hmm. because it, I mean, just the fact that we continue to do it is malleable in nature. And that each person is bringing their particular touch to that. Yeah. What, yeah, what, what happens to us if we are not, if we are not malleable? Mm -hmm. I've talked to a number of other Alaska Native artists who don't like using the word traditional because they feel like it implies old and antiquated, when in reality, the traditions are still being very much in use. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the word traditional? I don't have a I don't, it doesn't flag anything for me. Okay. Um, yeah. I, uh, people call me a traditionalist cause I won't weave a Chilkat blanket in purple. Um, and that doesn't offend me. I, I am, I am working in a particular tradition with some very specific teachings that were left in my care. And I'm okay. If someone wants to say, Oh, you're traditional. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I really like moccasins and, and, hooligan oil um so that you know that's that's um that's a terrible stereotype lily uh, <laughs> um uh, i yes i don't i don't have a uh, that doesn't that doesn't trigger anything for me um i i would say that here's here's my elevator pitch um if somebody says well what do you do I weave bougie indigenous contemporary earrings inspired and uh, rooted in the tradition of Chilkat and Ravenstail weaving. That's great. That's a good elevator pitch. Right? Like, wh what do you do? Well, I weave some pretty fancy jewelry and it's all like legitimized by the, the deep spiritual work of creating ceremonial regalia. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can take home a little bit of ceremony and wear it on your ears in a big way. Well, Lily, that does it for my questions. You know, I wanted to thank you for talking with me today and teaching me about weaving. Oh, thanks. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Hmm. Uh, no, I guess um, for all those listeners out there, I guess I would say um, keep asking questions. Um, keep being curious. Find find your community or your happy isolation place to create, and hopefully you keep your creative kid alive for as long as you're alive. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org.
This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. <laughs>